The Christmas story centers around a virgin, and with that being the case, I want to start by reading you a letter written to the founder of Virgin, the world-renowned Sir Richard Branson. It's a tenuous link, I know. This is a complaint letter written by a passenger who traveled from Mumbai to Heathrow on Virgin Airlines. It's become known as the greatest complaint letter ever written. Dear Mr. Branson, reference Mumbai to Heathrow, 7th of December 2008. I love the Virgin brand, I really do, which is why I continue to use it despite a series of unfortunate incidents over the last few years. This latest incident takes the biscuit. Ironically, by the end of the flight, I'd have gladly paid over a thousand rupees for a single biscuit, following the culinary journey of hell I was subjected to at the hands of your corporation. Look at this, Richard, just look at it, see image one. I imagine the same questions are racing through your brilliant mind as we're racing through mine on that fateful day. What is this? Why have I been given it? What have I done to deserve this? And which one is the starter? Which one is the dessert? You don't get to a position like yours, Richard, with anything less than a generous sprinkling of observational power. So I know you'll have spotted the tomato next to the two yellow shafts of sponge on the left. Yes, it's next to the sponge shaft without the green paste. That's got to be the clue, hasn't it? No sane person would serve a dessert with a tomato, would they? Well, answer me this, Richard. What sort of animal would serve a dessert with peas in it? See image two. I know it looks like a bargy, but it's in custard, Richard. Custard. <laughs> it must be the pudding. Well, you'll be fascinated to hear that it wasn't custard. It was a sour gel with a clear oil on top. Its only redeeming feature was that it managed to be so alien to my palate that it took away the taste of the curry emanating from the miscellaneous central cuboid of beige matter. Perhaps the meal on the left might be the dessert after all. Anyway, this is all irrelevant at the moment. I was raised strictly but neatly by my parents, and if they knew I'd start a dessert before the main course, a sponge shaft would be the least of my worries. So let's peel back the tin fall on the main dish and see what's on offer. I'll try and explain how this felt. Imagine being a 12-year-old boy, Richard. Now imagine it's Christmas morning and you're sat there with your final present to open. It's the big one and you know what it is. It's that Goodman stereo you picked out of the catalogue and wrote to Santa about. Only you open the present and it's not in there. It's your hamster, Richard. It's your hamster in the box and it's not breathing. <laughs> That's how I felt when I peeled back the tin foil and saw this, see image three. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's more of that bargy custard. I admit, I thought the same, but no, it's mustard, Richard. Mustard. More mustard than any human could consume in a month. On the left, we have a piece of broccoli and some peppers in a brown glue-like oil. And on the right, the chef had prepared some mashed potato. The potato mash had obviously broken, so it was decided the next best thing would be to pass the potatoes through the digestive tract of a bird. Once it was regurgitated, it was then clearly blended and mixed with a bit of mustard. Everyone likes a bit of mustard, Richard. By now, I was actually starting to feel a little hypoglycemic. I needed a sugar hit. Luckily, there was a small cookie provided. It caught my eye earlier due to its baffling presentation. See image four. It appears to be in an evidence bag from the scene of a crime. A crime against cooking. Either that or some sort of backstreet underground cookie purchased of a gun-toting maniac high on his own supply of yeast. You certainly wouldn't want to be caught carrying one of these through customs. Imagine biting into a piece of brass, Richard. That would be softer on the teeth than the specimen above. I was exhausted. All I wanted to do was relax, but obviously I had to sit with that mess in front of me for half an hour. I swear the sponge shafts moved at one point. 
Once cleared, I decided to relax with a bit of your world-famous onboard entertainment. I switched it on, see image five. I apologize for the quality of the photo. It was just incredibly hard to capture Boris Johnson's face with the flickering white lines running up and down the screen. I'd had enough. I was the hungriest I'd been in my adult life, and I had a splitting headache from squinting at a crackling screen. My only option was to simply stare at the seat in front and wait for either food or sleep. Neither came for a very long time. But when it did, it surpassed my wildest expectations. See image six. Yes, it's another crime scene cookie. Only this time you dunk it in the white stuff. Richard, what is the white stuff? It looked like it was going to be yogurt. It finally dawned on me what it was after staring at it. It was a mixture between the bhaji custard and the mustard sauce. It reminded me of my first week at university. I'd overheard that you could make a drink by mixing vodka and refreshers. I lied to my new friends and told them I'd done it loads of times. When I attempted to make the drink in a big bowl, it formed a cheese, Richard, a cheese. And that cheese looked a lot like your bhaji mustard. So that was that, Richard. I didn't eat a thing. My only question is, how can you live like this? I can't imagine what dinner around your house is like. It must be like something out of a nature documentary. As I said at the start, I love your brand. I really do. It's just a shame such a simple thing could bring it crashing to its knees and begging for sustenance. Yours sincerely, Oliver Beale. What an amazing complaint letter. I want you to consider that flight from Mumbai to Heathrow to be a metaphor for the cultural moment we find ourselves in. You're going to need to use your imagination, but I believe in you. In what sociologists are calling the age of anxiety, the entertainment system isn't working properly, we can't get to sleep, and the food isn't providing any comfort. Let me explain more. Firstly, then, the entertainment system isn't working properly. The purpose of entertainment is to create shared experiences that bring joy. In the UK, we currently spend 80.5 billion each year on media and entertainment. We're spending more than ever before, but the industry is tailoring entertainment to an individual on a screen watching it from their bedroom, and therefore, rather than building community, it is creating greater isolation than ever before. More than that, the system is also widening the gap between our future longings and our present reality. Rather than distracting us from our present reality, the entertainment system reminds us that our hoped-for future is way out of reach. Again, it stirs anxiety. Secondly, we can't sleep properly. According to Aviva's recent well-being report, 16 million adults in the UK suffer from sleepless nights. 31% of the adult British population say they have insomnia. 48% say they aren't getting enough sleep. 13% of the British adult population take sleeping tablets every night. And another 13% drink alcohol just to settle the nerves before they attempt to go to sleep. We crave sleep because we're not getting any, but more than that, we crave comfort. And what we're currently feasting on, rather than comforting us, is again fueling greater anxiety. The average person in the UK now consumes three hours and 23 minutes of screen time every day. Over the course of a year, that is 50 days staring at a screen. I don't know what your average day looks like, but let me hazard a guess. 
that you wake up and the first thing you do is you reach for the smartphone. You bring it into bed with you and you give it a quick cuddle. Um, and then you look for some messages, WhatsApp text messages. There's a few waiting for you. It gives you a dopamine rush. You then check your emails and anxiety levels begin to rise. You then check your social media feed just to check if anyone's been having more fun than you. They have. Um, anxiety levels continue to rise. You then check your news feed. Headlines hit you. That creates greater anxiety. So you go downstairs. You need to make yourself a coffee because you're going to need some caffeine to get this day going. You eventually leave the house. You go to work. When you get to work, there's hundreds of emails waiting for you. There's a to-do list that's terrifying. So that day you work hard and you work late. You get home late, which means you eat late, which means you go to bed late, right? 13% will knock back some sleeping tablets. 13% will grab a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey to help them go down. And 31%, according to the stats, will try and fail to fall asleep. Listen to these words of wisdom written thousands of years ago. This is Psalm 127. It says, in vain you rise early to grab your mobile phone. This is a modern translation, by the way. And in vain you go to bed late, knocking back some sleeping pills, eating the bread of anxious toil. We're working harder than ever before. We get less sleep than ever before. Does it surprise us, as I said earlier, that sociologists call this moment the age of anxiety? We are anxious. We are knackered. We are losing hope. Happy Christmas. Don't worry, it gets more encouraging. The question is, is there a different food supply? Is there a different source of hope? Let me take you back 2,000 years to the first Christmas. Do you know what everyone was talking about that first Christmas? It wasn't Brexit, but they were talking about politics. Emperor Augustus had issued a decree that a census be taken over the whole Roman world, so everyone was told to go back to their hometowns to be counted. Why would you take a census? And the answer is to make sure everyone was paying their taxes. So they were talking about politics and they were talking about the economy. In the Jewish community, they were talking about their king, King Herod. He was a puppet king. They were asking questions. Does he have any substance? Will he ever be able to stand up against Rome? So they were talking about the economy. They were talking about politics. They were talking about leadership. And the political landscape in the first century was becoming heavily tribal. Factions were emerging. Let me name four of them. Firstly, there were zealots. They believed that the pathway to freedom and salvation came through fighting. They were trying to gather together an army to go up against Rome. There was another group called the Pharisees. These were the religious fundamentalists. They went around telling people, stop being naughty boys and girls, and maybe if we're really moral and upright, then salvation will descend from above. There was another group called the Essenes. They were kind of checking out of society. They believed the pathway to salvation was withdrawal and isolation. So they created a home in the wilderness. And finally, there were the Sadducees. These were the trendy progressives. They believed that salvation would come through compromise and tolerance. Let's assimilate. Let's do some deals with Rome. If they scratch our back and we scratch their back, everyone plays nicely, then maybe we'll taste some freedom. Does any of this sound familiar? The progressives on the left, the conservatives on the right, some people checking out of the political landscape, other people wanting to fight. And in the middle, you have the exhausted and highly anxious majority beginning to lose hope. So what happened? Well, when one eye was on Rome, the sort of power center of the empire, and another eye was on Jerusalem, which meant they were cross-eyed because they couldn't see clearly. But with one eye on Rome and one eye on Jerusalem, in a nowhere part of the empire, something incredible happened. A baby was born. 
and not just any old baby, a king, and not just any old king, but God incarnate, God in human flesh, God with us, divine royalty robed in humanity. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it, this baby was infinity dwindled to infancy. This baby boy grew to become a man, and more than that, a man on a mission. Jesus begins his public ministry, quoting Isaiah to announce his vision. He says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me. In other words, I've been anointed as king, and this is what the kingdom is like. It involves good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He goes on to say that he's going to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve. He'll bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's beautiful. What an amazing vision. How would you summarize this mission statement of Jesus? It's tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort is the first great need of people experiencing pain. Before remedy, people need relationship. They need to know they're not alone in the struggle. I don't know if you heard the story of a British family that went to Mallorca on holiday. Um, And the father and son went for a walk on a secluded beach and they were standing on a wall and watching the waves smash against this wall and then one rogue wave came up, hit the child and dragged the child out to sea. The father looked around to see if anyone could help but no one was there. So he jumped into the ocean to rescue his son and tragically they both drowned that day. And the British press picked up on the story celebrating the bravery of this father. What was so brave about this father jumping in after the boy? What was so brave is the father knew that he couldn't swim. He was looking around for help. Um, No one was there, so he thought he'd jump in at best. He wanted to sort of hold his son long enough for help to come at worst. He wanted to hold his boy as they both went under. And tragically, it was the latter. Isn't that what any loving father would do? Isn't that what any loving parent would do? You wouldn't stand back, you'd jump into the waters. And this is what the Christmas story is about. The birth of Jesus reveals not a distant, dispassionate deity who doesn't care, but a loving father who jumps into the waves. Our reading from earlier describes Jesus as amazing counselor. He's here to comfort us. Strong God. In other words, he's mighty to save. Eternal father who loves his kids and jumps into the mess. Prince of wholeness. He's able to bring order and establish peace. God jumps into the waves so that we might know we're never alone. However deep, however dark the pit, however big the waves, you are never, ever alone. We have not been abandoned by divinity, but embraced by it. When Jesus burst onto the scene in the first century, Matthew's gospel states that the people walking in darkness, they saw a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light dawned. Why did they think that? Because the one who created the world, who said, let there be light and there was light, was now with them in the waves, bringing light to their surroundings. Jesus embraced the outcasts in order to bring the comfort of his father. 
He welcomed home lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, adulterers, the sick. The marginalized were drawn into the center of God's family. A revolution emerged. It was called the kingdom of God. And it emerged not from the centers of power, Rome or Jerusalem, but from the forgotten corners. And it emerged not with the educated or wealthy elite, but with the overlooked and forgotten few. And in this revolution, people found family, and they found hope, they found healing, they found dignity, purpose, peace, and joy. But it was a revolution that Rome, the Jewish authorities, and those closest to power could not tolerate. So Jesus, the revolutionary leader, died for the sins of the world. In other words, he died because of humanity's lust for power and control. He died because of humanity's greed, our desire for independence, our desire to reign not with God or for God, but instead of God. So Jesus drowned in the waters of human sin, greed, and rebellion. And for three days, it seemed like the revolution was over, snuffed out. It seemed that light had entered the darkness, but the darkness had overcome it. But the God who created the world with a word, separating the waters from dry land to establish the cosmos, he also redeemed it with a word. This time, the word made flesh, Christ himself. Jesus went down to the deepest depths of our depravity, but rose to separate the waters once more to recreate and restore the world he so loves. As a result of the resurrection, all things are being restored, being redeemed. All things are being made new. The Christmas story is therefore more than a story of momentary comfort for a particular people in a particular place 2,000 years ago. This isn't just a story for the history books. What did the angels say? We bring you glad tidings of great joy for all people, not some people, all people in every place, in every age. God, Emmanuel, brings great comfort, yes, But he also brings great joy. The grave became a dance floor as resurrection joy began to fuel the revolution. The movement developed exponential momentum. It swept through and eventually overcame the Roman Empire. It kept on spreading. It keeps on spreading. And now 2,000 years later, almost 2.5 billion people on the planet proclaim to be part of this revolution of comfort and joy. So what does any of this have to do with Christmas 2019? Great question. Well, in four days, everyone will be deliberating and deciding on where to place their hopes. How are you going to vote? London will be a boiling pot of anxiety, expectation and hope. Some will end that day celebrating. Some will end in tears. Some will be terrified about the future, others excited. But right in the middle of the political frenzy, millions of Christians in this country, billions of Christians across the globe will be celebrating Advent, a Latin term that means arrival. We'll be lighting candles and pulling chocolates out of calendars, not because we're weird, or slightly weird maybe, not because we're frightened or hiding or trying to escape reality. Far from it. This is the way of the revolution. This is the way of the uprising. We light candles because we believe light has entered the darkness, and the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. At our time of greatest need, we have a saviour who described himself as the bread of life, declaring that whoever turned to him would never go hungry again. Whoever believed in him would never be thirsty again. In other words, every desire, every human longing could find satisfaction in relationship with him. We therefore don't need to feed on the bread of anxious toil, because at Christmas we celebrate the arrival of fresh bread from heaven. 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the stormy waters of the old order have been parted in order that a new kingdom might break in, a kingdom characterized by peace, joy, feasting, generosity, and dancing, all the things associated with Christmas, the day of the king's arrival, the day heaven and earth and God and humanity embraced once more. So let me close with these final words from one of my favorite Christmas poems. God embraced our frame when he graced the world he made. All hail the divine in a manger. Love embraced our fate when the playwright took the stage. All hail the arrival of our maker. When the author steps into the story, it means redemption is at hand. This is the good news of Christmas. God is way closer than you think. He's here to comfort the hurting and lead us into a season of joy. So may you hear this Christmas in every carol, in every reading, in every ringing of a church bell, tidings of comfort and joy. And more than just hearing this, this is my prayer for everyone here, that you may experience the comfort and the joy that Jesus brings to anyone that calls upon his name.